Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Well, the impeachment process is ongoing in Washington, D.C. today. And last week, four law professors testified on the potential impeachment of President Trump. One of those uh, law professors joins us today. Noah Feldman, professor of law at Harvard University. He's also a Bloomberg opinion columnist. Uh, he's based in Boston, Massachusetts. He joins us here on the phone. Noah, thanks so much for joining us. Um, again, compelling testimony by you and your uh, fellow professors last week. Just give us your sense, your takeaway of the testimony. My takeaway is that we laid out a clear case for why the framers wanted impeachment to exist at all, um, namely to deal with a situation where a president distorted the use of his office for ultimately purposes of his own, like re-election. That we talked about what high crimes and misdemeanors really are, that they are in essence the abuse of office. And then we suggested that if you believe the stuff you've been watching on TV and, and reading about it, and if you believe that the allegations against President Trump are accurate, then it would follow that impeachment would be appropriate. Do you feel like you're speaking into an empty vacuum that basically the only people who would hear you uh, would be people who agreed with you and everybody else you weren't going to convince? I really hope not. You know, I think it may be that sometimes uh, in places where people are obsessed with the impeachment, they think they know all the details and they form views already, which is fine. But in most of the country, I think there are still a lot of people who are trying to figure out exactly what's going on, who are busy people with jobs and lives who haven't been obsessively focused on this until now. And so with any luck, what this provided was just a clear statement of why it's worthwhile to take this so seriously, why it's appropriate to take up the valuable time of the American people on, on this issue. And I think, you know, on that, my sense, at least from the mail and social media contacts that I'm connections that I'm getting, there are people who were glad to hear it laid out simply and clearly. So, Noah... Yeah, I think the consensus is that the House will likely vote for impeachment. It will then go to the Senate and then go along party lines. If a Republican senator uh, votes not to uh, move forward with, is that senator saying that he or she does not believe that there were impeachable offenses, despite what you're saying and some others are saying, these really are impeachable offenses? Well, there are two things that a senator could be saying. One would be, I think these things are in principle impeachable, but I don't believe that the president did them. And a little hard to believe that someone would have that view, given how overwhelming the evidence is. But maybe somebody would think that and maybe they'll say that. And, you know, if that's the case, fair enough. You know, I mean, whether you believe the evidence or not is very much a question of individual credibility determination. The other thing they could be saying, as you say, is that they think it's fine for the president of the United States to go out and use the office of the presidency to try to get personal advantage in an election through investigations from a foreign country of his opponent. And I would be really saddened if any member of the Senate believed that that was not impeachable conduct, because it's just so clear from what the framers said. And it's also just, even if you leave the framers out of it, it's just so obvious that that's the kind of conduct that we can't tolerate in a president because it distorts re-election. And so I really hope that no senator would would vote uh, not to, you know, vote to acquit the president on that basis. There's an interesting legal question here, uh, and, and you're, prefer you're perfect to weigh in on this. Justice Roberts would be the third uh, justice to preside over an impeachment trial in the U.S. Senate if it gets there. Um, he is overseeing the Senate, but he is the first uh, who has 
openly clashed with the president, uh, who is potentially going to be impeached. What do you think he's going to do if this comes to pass? Chief Justice Roberts is someone who throughout his career has shown a very, very deep commitment to protecting the legitimacy of the Supreme Court by making sure that it's not partisan. Now, the court, of course, is ideological. Different people on the court have different beliefs, including Chief Justice Roberts. But there's a difference between being ideological, which means you have values and ideas and they affect you, and being partisan, which means you do what the political party that you're affiliated with wants you to do. And I think he will bend over backwards to make sure that he is not partisan in any way. And I think he will try very hard to be as objective as he can be. I would add that his powers are somewhat limited. Most things the chief justice does in an impeachment hearing could be overturned by a bare majority of the Senate on a vote. So if he makes a decision on, say, an evidence question, the Senate could vote to override him in any moment. So one thing he could do is if there's anything really controversial, he could just turn to the senators and say, okay, you guys vote on it. I'm not even going to make this decision and have you overrule me. And that would be one way for him to stay out of the crosshairs of the partisan fight. So, uh, no, it appears like it's being reported that, uh, you know, the House is trying to move for a vote prior to them leaving for recess on December 20. Give us a sense of the timing. If that does occur and it goes to the Senate, give us a sense of the timing of what it could be in the Senate, the trial, actually. Well, when the Senate comes back in January, you know, it can take up that trial right away if it wants to, or it can choose through its the majority leadership there to, to delay. That's very much a question in the hands of the Senate. There's no nothing in the Constitution that tells you how fast the Senate has to take up the question. My guess is they would probably take it up pretty quickly. And then the question is, how full a trial would it be? The House traditionally sends over some members of the House who are called the impeachment managers, and they literally go over to the Senate chamber and they argue the case like prosecutors. And they usually have the opportunity historically to call some witnesses. And then a defense is usually mounted by the president, but we don't know if the president will mount a defense here or not. And if he doesn't, it could be a relatively short and compact process. And then again, it's up to the Senate to decide when they will go for a vote, and then um, then that vote will happen. So it could it could all happen relatively quickly. My guess is that it would not be over by the end of January, but I think it's highly probable that it would be over sometime by the end of February. Noah, just quickly here, I'm wondering, can you tell us a little bit about the experience of testifying and how cold yeah. it was in the room? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was a very strange experience, as you can imagine. First of all, it was weirdly cold in the room, and Doug Collins the ranking uh, Republican on the committee actually took some time out of his public statement to say that it was too cold. And also he, he didn't like his chair. So that gives you some sense of the weirdness of it all. Um, you know, ultimately, their cameras are there. The people are in the room. But your audience is not just the people sitting there. Your audience is also the broader public and especially the public that isn't obsessed with these hearings and just wants to know what, what are you doing here? And all you can really do is try to state your case simply and concisely. And I did that, and I'm, I'm happy I had the chance to do that. And then, you know, the other side comes after you, and very often they, they say something mean about you, and then they don't actually ask you a question where you could respond. And that's always a little frustrating. It always feels a bit like a cheap shot. Noah Feldman, thank you so much for being with us. And good advice to anyone who's going to testify in front of Congress. Uh, bring tea and a Dress sweatshirt. Warmly. Yes, <laughs> Noah Feldman is professor of law at Harvard University, also a Bloomberg Opinion columnist, uh, joining us by phone. As the U.S. and China push forward to some type of trade deal, one of the fallouts we're seeing is 
maybe each other's governments, you know, want to go beyond that. Maybe what we're seeing here from China, some news coming out today that Lisa and I agree is really, really important as we think about the negotiations between the U.S. and China. And that's Chinese government taking further steps to remove foreign technology from state agencies and other organizations. To get a sense of how important that is, we welcome Anand Srinivasan. He's a senior semiconductor and hardware analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So Anand, Beijing saying that they may remove as many as 20 million computers at government agencies with domestic products over the three years. That seems like a big deal to me and to Lisa. Absolutely, look, it is a big deal. And effectively, it is trying to create an alternative ecosystem across the PC, semiconductor, and hardware food chains. It's not um, easy to do. It's not going to be overnight. It's going to be particularly painful because uh, Intel, Microsoft, um, all the PC makers, the motherboard makers, the driver makers, the, um, the flash software that goes into the firmware that goes into each of these chips have been tested and tested again and tested across every single combination over the past 30 years. And we have this iterative sort of uh, systemic knowledge that is built up so that when a system is implemented, like a PC desktop in an average desk worker's um, workstation, um, and this is not his or her main function, you know it works, right? You can't afford to take those chances. It works, it's stable uh, for the most part, and uh, it just gets allows him or her to get stuff done. Um, to, to go to an alternative platform means that you are from the bottom of the stack, from the semiconductor that is used to the top of the stack, which is the operating system and the applications that run on it, you are replacing that entire food chain and you are you're giving a quality of service to that individual that is error-free, highly reliable, and what we call in the industry seven nines, 99.99999 reliable. It's not going to be. It's uh, it's not well, going to be uh, re that reliable. Okay, that's which is probably the reason why you're seeing Microsoft, Microsoft, Dell, and HP shares doing nothing today, basically, even though you have uh, China ordering all government offices and public institutions to remove foreign computer equipment and software. And these would be the companies uh, that could potentially hurt from it. So is it insignificant or is it just, you know, that, that this sort of edifies a, a feeling that had been in the market for a while, which is China is going to gradually push in order to uh, have its own technology supersede international uh, competitors? Yeah, the creating of the, the, the bifurcation is a serious risk from our technology development track when you try to develop something on your own. And then this is a replay of the VHS Betamax story all over again, separated by national boundaries. It is not good from a technology development track for either side of the track, regardless of how better or worse one technology might be. Okay, but for tech ignorance like myself, um, are we just talking about a PC? Are we talking about cloud? Are we talking about it's everything? everything? Right? Are we it's everything, about right? So, okay. so we can replace the Dell PC with uh, a, a Chinese mainstay, Lenovo, which is a, a global market leader, number one in PCs That right can now. happen right away. Right, except that what's powering the Lenovo PC? It's still an x86. Okay, you say, I don't want to use Intel. Let's go with the other option, AMD, which also is American. Then you say, I don't want to use uh, Microsoft. What are your choices? You use a Linux kernel. How many apps run on the Linux kernel? How, do you, how are you going to replace Excel? You say, no, I'm going to go to Google Docs. Wait, that's American too. Details, details.
So you're stuck between a rock and a hard place and its changes don't come easily and it's uh, going to be painful. All right, let's just step back a little bit. It appears that we're moving ever so slowly towards a phase one type of deal. What's the feeling out in Silicon Valley about trade just in general, our relationship with China? Is it a big, big concern that this thing could go sideways? Look, I think that uh, in in my opinion, we're, we're pricing in for sure uh, uh, some sort of a deal some sort of a phase one deal, uh, hopefully that doesn't rock the boat too much from current level of tariffs, number one. Number two is from a China-Silicon Valley relationship, again, it's one of those darned if you do, darned if you don't scenarios. You need them because they're a 20% market for all of our products and services. You need them because they're a supply chain, a supply chain essential, uh, but we also recognize that this is not a healthy relationship and that you have to move away from uh, to, to a distributed manufacturing model, for example, but that it's going to cost more. Well, I will say uh, this has been a fascinating conversation. And just to leave with this tidbit, analysts at Jefferies estimate uh, that U.S. technology companies generate as much as $150 billion a year in revenues from China, which is the reason why trade discussions and any mandate from Beijing should be taken seriously, if not perhaps literally, at least if you look at the stock price uh, right now. Anand Srinivasan, thank you so much for being with us. Anand Srinivasan, who saved his Yiddish for before the segment, <laughs> a senior semiconductor and hardware analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Well, 2019 will certainly go down as a year for risk on assets, outperformance across the board. The question is, is it time to take a little bit more risk as we head into 2020 going forward? Right now, let's welcome Luca Paolini, Chief Strategist for Pictay Asset Management, over $200 billion uh, assets under management based in London, but joining us here on our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Luca, thanks so much for joining us. Morning. You have a call here where you're overweight emerging markets. So that's mm. saying we had a good run in 2019. I'm willing to take a little bit more risk going forward. Well, actually, our view is slightly different. We think the market next year will actually struggle a little bit. We think that the, uh, the real trade for next year is more on sector and regional allocation. So this year, everything that could go up went up. Next year, I think we have to be more selective. And what we like is either the extreme valuation of some markets, or actually, when we look at the uh, um, or sectors or regions, where we think there is a solid earnings growth behind it. When you look at value, you cannot avoid a conclusion that emerging markets, Europe, Japan is a different story, offer much better value than the US. And so we think that this is where the value is. Emerging markets, Europe, even the UK, and much less in the US. This is interesting. I'm thinking about it, and I'm wondering whether it's actually accurate that everything has gone up that's been risky because we've seen mm. triple C's lag behind. And we mm. have seen emerging markets lag behind mm. uh, in part because people have been sure. concerned and showing some discretion. So which areas within emerging market do you think uh, people have been leaving behind more than they should, right? And there has to be a fundamental backdrop that supports this view as well, right? Yeah, I think when you look at emerging markets, the let's say two critical or key driver of emerging market performance is actually the dollar. Uh, and global growth, especially if, especially emerging market growth. So what we see, and maybe we're wrong on this, we expect the dollar to peak. And the reason why the dollar is going to struggle next year is simple. 
Until recently, the U.S. economy was significantly outperforming. The Fed was hiking rates when everybody was cutting rates. Now you're in a situation when the Fed is cutting rates like everybody else, where U.S. growth is not very different from Europe. This quarter is going to be 1%, 1.5. So there is a convergence of growth and the dollar is 20% more expensive. So we assume the dollar is going to go down and global growth is weak. But I think we start to see some kind of sign of stabilization. That's normally a good combination for emerging markets. And, and obviously, the valuation is also very attractive. So within emerging markets, are there certain markets you like more than others? We've had some interesting performance, Brazil and, and some others out of Latin America versus Eastern Europe, for example. Actually, we continue to prefer Russia. Russia has been, uh, if you look at the past two years, been the best market in two years in a row. And Russia actually has outperformed the U.S. is 96, believe it or not, in dollar terms. So we continue to believe in Russia. Emerging Asia is also interesting because of valuation. And if you have any kind of um, let's say ceasefire in terms of trade war and this stabilization in growth emerging Asia actually would do much better on bonds Russian bond and Mexican bonds by far the best uh, opportunities and how do you like to get access or, or exposure to these uh, to these nations is it basically local currency debt or is it uh, we, equities or we prefer as I said we for Russia and, and Mexico we like local currency bonds because you have the advantage of having a significant or let's say real rates roughly three or four percent and undervalued currency and central banks that are cutting rates so the upside for bonds and emerging markets from the currency and for, from the equity side Asia is much more interesting you know Korea actually it looks actually quite 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 cheap considering that we may just about to see some stabilization in global growth you say you like financials that's not a widely held view of folks walking through the door here. Tell us about your thoughts on the financials. I have to say that meeting quite a few clients, quite a few are tempted to buy into financials. <laughs> but financials is like Japan in the last one. Every time you get excited about it, you tend to make a mistake. So now the, the, the question about financials is really what are the key drivers? The key drivers is bond yields and basically the market. So let's say financials do well when, when bond yields and markets are going up. This year markets are going up, but actually bond yields hasn't. So we expect bond yields to start going up next year. And if this is, the, this is true, well, all the value kind of cyclical value stocks, financials, energy, mining, can actually offer a potential. It's a tactical call though. I wouldn't personally invest in financials over the next five years, but over the next six or 12 months, I think could be could be a good trade. What about just US equities broadly? A lot of people have been mm. saying that that's still gonna remain the outperformer. Do you agree? No, I think I think the, the the problem that with the with U.S. equities is that there is no question that U.S. companies are much more profitable, better run the European and Japanese one. We all know that. It, that's that's no news. I have a problem though on in terms of earnings growth, which is basically flat. Margins have peaked. Wage growth is picking up. We are probably towards the end of the business cycle, and you see that in the yield curve, default rates, in a lot of indicators, and and the, and the valuations still continue to be quite expensive. So I think I I personally think that U.S. will start to underperform next year, especially in dollar terms. We expect the dollar to to decline. Real quick, treasury yields rising or falling? Uh, we have two percent for the end of next year, so a marginal increase, not much, but you know you're not going to make a lot of money with bonds next year now. 20 more seconds. I'm just wondering, what did you have for breakfast? Uh, three croissants, if you believe it or not. Three almond croissants at 4 o'clock because of some kind of a gel leg issue. Um, three croissants? How one big after were they? Almond croissant, three. One they after must have the been tiny because I, no I, I, I don't think so, but... <laughs> he must be a marathon runner. Thank you so much for being with us. Uh, really uh, wonderful information. Luca Paolini, he is Chief Strategist at Picte Asset Management with more than $200 billion under uh, management. Normally... Uh, in London today, gracing our interactive broker studios.
We've had the OPEC Plus meeting. They are instituting further uh, production cuts. We've already gotten the Saudi Aramco IPO, if you could call it that. Going forward, will the balance of oil prices be determined by supply or demand? That is one of the key questions. Joining us now, Regina Mayer. She is Global Energy Head for KPMG based in Houston. Uh, Regina, I want to start there with the supply-demand side, because honestly, for the most of this year, uh, the demand side was driving things, and we're seeing that again today with the prices dipping just a bit on the heels of trade uncertainty. Going into 2020, will the supply side uh, start to take the helm? I think the supply side is going to take be taken into um, in, being factored in, largely because the market likes negative signals when it comes to oil price. So given that we have extensive supply um, overproduction numbers that are coming out, and especially for Q1 of next year, then we're seeing supply factored into the downward pressure on the price. I see supply and demand, when they have an impact, it's a downward pressure, which is very frustrating for the industry overall, but I'm in a very bearish mood when it comes to crude prices. <laughs> so, Regina, we, you know, they, we had some announcements about the cuts, but whenever I read OPEC or OPEC plus uh, you know, production cut announcements, yeah, I feel like we have to take them with a grain of salt. Do you think they will hold this time? And if not, who will be the, the bad actors or actors? Compliance is definitely the name of the game and probably the reason why the meeting took so, so much longer than they had anticipated last week. The bad actors are Russia in particular. I thought that their little fine print agreement around declassifying condensate out of the numbers was a nod toward Russia's noncompliance and the fact that they they will continue to be noncompliant, uh, but they're going to calculate it differently so they don't look as bad as they had perhaps in the past. And the U.S. sanctions on Iran and Venezuela are only helping the OPEC pictures overall, but Saudi is going to have to muscle their way through it, and they're going to have to be the ones that bear the brunt of the lion's share of the cuts. Regina, you said that you have a very bearish uh, take right now on the price of crude. I'm looking at crude traded in the NYMAX at $59 flat, uh, down just a touch, 34 basis points uh, from from Friday. I'm trying to figure out what's driving that, what, where you think that's going to be going. In other words, are we headed, is the, is the threshold $40 or the, thre- the, the sort of uh, threshold $70? Well, I don't think it's either. I think the, the OPEC plus agreement helps us stay in this sort of not too hot, not too cold. Now, I wouldn't say just right in a Goldilocks sense, but within a range that people feel mostly comfortable with. If we can keep WTI close to 60 and if we can keep Brent close to 65, that is what producers are aiming for. That's still not, that means that U.S. shale is still not really in the money across the board and we'll still continue to see a lot of pressure on capital investment on the U.S. shale producers. So, Regina, let's shift gears just a little bit to Saudi Aramco. Uh, the company priced its IPO last week, I think, at 32 reals each, raising $25.6 billion. Uh, that was at the top end of the range here. So it's going to start trading on Wednesday. My concern is they have virtually no Western investors in this transaction. What's the feeling within your world about how this thing was structured, i.e. really just kind of limiting it to some of the Middle East I was in a conference last week with a lot of private equity investors uh, here in Houston, and they were asking, would you invest in that deal? And most people in the room said, absolutely not. There are far less risky places to put your capital within an energy context than investing in that deal. They will have subscribers, and there are a lot of sovereign wealth funds out there that will 
place a bet, and it will allow the Saudis to monetize this asset and drive uh, improvements in their budget that they need right, to improve their, their country and their economy. But it's not going to necessarily be something that's super complicated and that a lot of Western investors are going to be knocking down the doors to invest in. So back in the U.S. with shale producers uh, under fire, because this is just not economic for them with oil prices where they are, we are seeing capital expenditures fall uh, pretty much across the board in the shale patch. I'm trying to figure out, though, why this isn't bullish for prices, the idea that on the margins you are seeing uh, producers realize that things aren't going to change that much, which is going to reduce supply. Yeah, so there's a projection that U.S. supply goes up to 13.5 million barrels per day for 2020. I think, personally, that projection is at risk because I am seeing a slowdown in U.S. shale production, and I am seeing a lack of capital. If you look at some of the smaller players in U.S. shale, and if you look at some of the impairments that were recorded in Q3, that's where you'll start to see it. It's a treadmill that they've been on, and they've had to continue to invest to, to sort of stay apace, and that capital is drying up. So I personally am um, more bullish that U.S. supply starts to get a little bit constrained, which could help promote prices longer term and could play into OPEC's hands in the Saudi IPO, which will be positive from an overall producer perspective. Regina, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate your thoughts. Regina Mayer, Global Energy Head at KPMG, talking all things oil. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.